The Hamlet Podcast, episode 45. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanmerty. The pot is boiling, the witches have agreed to reveal to Macbeth what he desires to know, and most shocking of all, he's chosen to hear it not from the witches, but from their masters. It's all the more mysterious that these masters are plural. There's a vagueness and a threat to it, and we don't really get to hear much more about them. The first apparition becomes visible now, and according to the stage directions, it is an armed head. This means a head that is wearing a helmet, battle armour, or something like that. The play began with a description of Macbeth in battle, and one of the first things we hear about him is how mercilessly he disemboweled and then decapitated the merciless Macdonald, and then fixed his head upon the battlements. The play will end as it began with another severed head, but for the sake of anyone new to the story, I won't say whose head it might be. Given that the play is bookended with such violence, it is all the more chilling that the first thing Macbeth is shown is the head of a soldier. But of course, we don't get much more detail than that. It's supposed to leave us with questions, and certainly it's a means for a designer and a director to cook up some kind of a plan to make it intriguing and even terrifying on stage. Of course, Macbeth thinks he's in control here, and so as soon as this head appears, he tries to take over. He starts off saying, Tell me, thou unknown power. But the first witch cuts him off. He knows thy thought. Hear his speech, but say thou naught. Macbeth is trying to question the mysterious vision before him. An unknown power is certainly at work, so this is a fine way to address it. But the witch is having none of it, telling him that he should be silent, since the apparition already knows what Macbeth might be thinking. You'd hardly notice it, but there's a brilliant little switch here, where the witch finishes Macbeth's line of iambic pentameter, Tell me, thou unknown power, he knows thy thought, but then reverts to her own shorter, witchy rhythm. She still rhymes, but it's as if she assumes Macbeth's language to speak to him, and then draws him back into the rules of their world. Hear his speech, but say thou naught. Macbeth is just a visitor, and he has no power here. Now that Macbeth has been chastened, the armed head speaks. It says, Macbeth, 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 beware Macduff, beware the Thane of Fife, dismiss me, enough. The stage directions now say that the head descends, this could mean back into the cauldron, or indeed maybe it disappears down through the floor into hell. It has articulated something that we've all been wondering about, whether or not Macbeth should trust Macduff. Shakespeare's laid a pretty clear trail of crumbs to this. Macduff didn't go to the investiture, he went home to Fife, and now we know he's headed to England. Whether or not Macbeth knows this, and given his network of spies he probably does, He's now been given a very strong warning to beware Macduff. All of that dramatic work of setting the two men up as parallel warriors is starting to pay off. As the head descends, Macbeth can't hold his tongue and thanks it, saying, Whate'er thou art, for thy good caution thanks. 
thou hast harped my fear aright, but one word more. He's so greedy for information, he actually asks for more. But he's been polite and thanked the apparition, whatever it is, for its good caution. Macbeth has a great image here, saying that the vision has harped his fear. It's suggesting that the apparition has struck a chord, or a harp string, something that was tense and stretched, that now has been sounded aloud for the first time. It's a very elegant little image. But even this isn't enough to merit extra conference with the apparition. The first witch, managing the whole affair, says no. He will not be commanded. Here's another, more potent than the first. Macbeth shouldn't be thinking that he can command these spirits. They are indulging him, but he doesn't get to ask for extras or give them orders. Besides, another is appearing, more potent than the first, the witch says. Perhaps the reason she mentions this is to keep Macbeth quiet and attentive. This second apparition is described in the stage directions as a bloody child. This can be interpreted in a great many ways on stage. The blood could be that of a newborn child. It could be a baby that has been injured in the way that Lady Macbeth so gruesomely described earlier in the play. It could be Fleance, spattered with the blood of his murdered father. With a bit of foreshadowing, it could also be a child born of Caesarean section. The image should be haunting and disturbing. There's very much a sense of nature being challenged and upturned here. Almost like an incantation, again, the bloody child calls the name three times. Three again, just as the first one did. Macbeth, Macbeth, Macbeth. And Macbeth answers, Had I three ears, I'd hear thee. Macbeth acknowledges this triple greeting, and is almost joking when he says that he couldn't listen more attentively, even if he had a third ear to help him do so. The witches must surely be fed up with him already, interrupting every chance he gets. Perhaps they give him a stern look, but regardless, Macbeth holds his tongue and lets the second apparition speak. It says, Be bloody, bold and resolute. Laugh to scorn the power of man, for none of woman born shall harm Macbeth. This vision likewise descends according to the stage directions. Its message is clear. Macbeth can be bloody, bold and resolute in his confidence, since no man born of a woman shall harm Macbeth. That's a great piece of news to hear, perhaps since one might assume that all human men are born of women, you'd be forgiven for thinking that nobody is going to harm Macbeth. But, of course, no more than the oracles in the ancient world, so fond of giving their prophecies that could be read more than one way, there's a catch here, and a very significant one. But Macbeth doesn't trouble himself with it. Delighted at this promise, he says, Then live, Macduff, what need I fear of thee? but yet I'll make assurance double sure, and take a bond of fate. Thou shalt not live, that I may tell pale-hearted fear it lies, and sleep in spite of thunder. There's a brutal irony to Macbeth deciding, even for a moment, to let Macduff live. Shakespeare is toying with us. The apparition just appeared to suggest that no man alive could harm Macbeth. But, as we must later learn, Macduff was born via section, so technically, 
and is very specious and spooky and misleading, he was not of woman born. It's a very bold manipulation of facts, but it will have dramatic consequences. For now, the construction of the scene is very clever, since the first vision tells him to beware Macduff, while the second tells him to fear nobody. So Macbeth in the instant thinks, I needn't worry about him. What need he fear Macduff? But, he says, he will make assurance double sure. He'll take no chances, and double the likelihood of this security by killing Macduff anyway. Shakespeare uses legal language here, bonds and assurances and sureties, which is all the more ironic since Macbeth is thinking he can rely on the spooky information he's getting from these treacherous witches and their conjured visions. There's no law here, and no trustworthy promises either. What they say may be true, but not in the way that Macbeth is going to interpret it. He reckons he will kill Macduff to be sure to be sure, so that he will be able to stand in the face of fear and tell it that it lies, so he won't need to worry about being afraid any more. Even here we have another image of paleness being associated with fear and weakness, and we'll have more of them to come. Fear itself is pale-hearted, the opposite of the bloody, bold and resolute Macbeth. Given how badly he's been suffering from insomnia ever since he heard a voice tell him that Macbeth doth murder sleep, there's a glimmer of hope now when he says he'll sleep in spite of thunder. Removing Macduff will be all the balm he needs to rest easy. Or so he thinks. Now we get a third apparition, again announced by thunder. All three of them have been so far. This one is described as a child crowned, with a tree in his hand. Given that the first two apparitions, however vaguely, could be read as representations of major images from the play, this one perhaps also has something to tell us. No more than the three ghosts in Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, which reveal to Ebenezer Scrooge his past, his present and his future, perhaps we can respond to these three apparitions in a similar way. This latest vision is of a child crowned, but Macbeth has no children. And indeed, the first time the witches told him things, they warned that someone else's children would be kings, not his. So already, that's an image that might give Macbeth pause. Weirder still, the child has a tree in his hand. Without spoiling the play's dramatic conclusion, I hope, I'll say that what this child says in its message is reflected here in its appearance. Macbeth watches the child and the tree appearing, and yet again can't help but react aloud. What is this that rises like the issue of a king, and wears upon his baby brow the round and top of sovereignty? Macbeth is indeed alarmed at the sight of a child, a child that looks like a prince, the issue of a king. The child is wearing a crown, the round and top of sovereignty so the message is reaching Macbeth, at least in part. Yet again, the witches have to tell him to can it, and all of them say, Listen, but speak not to it. And now the child vision speaks. Be lion-mettled, proud, and take no care who chafes, who frets, or where conspirers are. Macbeth shall never vanquished be until great Burnham Wood to hide on Sinan Hill shall come against him.
as have the previous two, this apparition also descends, another hint of where perhaps these images are coming from. This one has had enough lines that we've been able to hear a rhyming pattern, care and are, until and hill, almost like a sing-song, perhaps again because it appears to be a child talking. This one is telling Macbeth to be lion-metalled, or courageous, like the heart of a lion, and also proud. He need not care who chafes or frets against him, or where conspirers are. Macbeth need fear neither revolution nor conspiracy, because he will not be vanquished until the great forest of Burnham Wood uproots itself and crosses a gap of twelve miles or so to Dunsinane or Dunsinan Hill in Perth, where Macbeth's castle is. Again, this is another seemingly reliable promise. After all, in what universe, short of the Lord of the Rings, might a forest grow legs and march to a new location? But again, nothing is to be trusted here, and Shakespeare even hints at what is to come by having this apparition arrive with a tree in his hand. This will make uncanny sense in the next act, but for now the vision vanishes and Macbeth, yet again, is left begging for more. And unfortunately I'm going to leave you feeling the same way, because we're going to leave it there for this episode, with the departure of the apparition, and we'll resume next time with what comes after. This will be Shakespeare's high-risk but intriguing final bit of conjuring from the witches. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'll be back this time next week, and I hope you'll join me then. <laughs>